This is In-Ear Insights, the Trust Insights Podcast. In this week's In-Ear Insights, the uh, old joke goes, hey, do you, you want your change? And the Buddhist monk says, no, change must come from within. Change management is one of those things that... <laughs> One of those things that is perpetually on the docket for management consulting firms uh, as a part of their remits, trying to help organizations do things differently and hopefully better. Uh, so, Katie, you've got uh, some workshops coming up on change management and have had you know decades of experience trying to get the most intractable people hi uh, <laughs> to make changes. <laughs> <how they do. laughs> Oh, that's funny. when it comes to change um, management. How do you how do you get people to change in ways that stick? In ways that stick. See, that's therein lies the key. So one of the places where change management goes wrong is a lack of outcomes and a lack of reinforcement. And so, change management is like anything else in the human experience. If you try it once you know, okay, cool, you can check off the list, but is it a habit that you have formed and that can stick with? And so um, I think one of the things they say about like fitness, for example, is that, you know, it takes four weeks, you know, depending on what you read, four weeks, three weeks, six weeks, whatever. The point is, it's that consistency and that repetitiveness of doing the thing that makes it a habit and makes it part of your daily routine and part of your lifestyle versus, you know, a fad diet. So change management, I sort of put into those two buckets. You you have the fad diet change management, and then you have the lifestyle changes of change management. And so when we're talking about it in the context of business, you know, where I often see teams try and fail is they try to do this fad diet version where it's like, okay, we're going to get those instant results and we're going to, lose 20 pounds overnight, and then we're going to assume that our lives are so much better. And then two weeks later, you've gained all of the weight back and then some and you're more miserable than you were before you even started. Whereas the version that people don't pick is the version that is small incremental change and takes a lot of time to see any of those results. And so again, sort of the example of working out, you know, it takes what, like eight weeks for you to see results and then 12 weeks for other people to see results with you. And so those feel like really long timelines. And you're like, I don't have that kind of time. I need people to start doing something differently yesterday. Well, that's not gonna happen because as humans, we are stubborn, we are insecure, and we don't wanna be told what to do. And so that is the crux of change management is trying to overcome a lot of those human emotions. Um, you know, change management also, you know, affects process and software platforms, but really it starts with the people. How do you counteract though, the fact that, you know, I'm thinking of some of the clients we've worked with present and past and things where, mm -hmm. because they are like Tarzan swinging from crisis to crisis, right? So I guess a terrible Tarzan, um, <clears throat> they, <laughs> <laughs> they don't have, they don't have the mental bandwidth even to to say like, yeah, I've got, you know, it's like, it'd be like the, in your analogy, a person going from medical crisis to medical crisis, they're back in the mm -hmm. hospital, they're back in the hospital. How, how do they start working out when, you know, life is a series of, of dumpster fires? It's one of the reasons why roles for people like me exist, you know, and so you need that 
change agent, that person who can sort of see things a little bit more objectively, who isn't in the weeds with all of the things um, to see where there is opportunity for change. And, you know, so part of it is that the way that you approach it. And so if you go into a conversation saying, these are all the things that are wrong, these are all the things that are broken, then the people that you're trying to work with are already on the defensive. So they're already like, well, everything's broken, so why bother because it's never gonna get better. When you really have to approach it from a more positive standpoint of, these are the opportunities for you to be set up for success. And it's, you know, it's just the changing of the way that you're phrasing it, but it really helps because one of the reasons why change is so hard is because there's a level of insecurity. So people don't like to fail. Uh, people don't like to feel like they are becoming irrelevant or redundant. And so change management is a big part of process improvement, organizational behavior improvement. And that sometimes leads to people no longer doing certain jobs or, um, you know, people feeling like they're being called out on things that they've been doing forever that are no longer needed. And so that sort of that breeds that fear. And so if you're an organization and you're, you feel like you're just trudging through every single day, barely getting ahead, you know, putting up fire after fire after fire, there's probably a lot of change management that needs to happen. But it's the hardest thing to do because it's a culture shift. It's a shift with the people themselves. And so, and the more people you have on the team, the more difficult it tends to be just because you're trying to get everybody moving in the same direction, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, when I worked in a couple of jobs ago, I used to manage uh, steering committees. And I think I've talked about these before. And so it was basically all of the stakeholders from all of the different departments so my steering committee, I think, was comprised of about 10 people, plus myself running the committee. My job was to get them all moving in the same direction and making decisions um, that benefited the product. And there was, it took, gosh, maybe four or five years of consistently having those meetings, having those conversations, you know, trying to get them to make a decision and until it sort of became a little bit more natural before it became like, okay, are we having a steering committee this week? Because I really want to talk about this thing. There was a lot of resistance up front. Um, I feel like I've been rambling on, but there's, you know, it's, it's not a small ask, even how, with a small you, company. Yeah. But how do you, how do you get a stakeholder to sign off on something and saying, yeah, you're going to see results in two to five years. And they're like, uh, I got to make my numbers for wall street this quarter, bro. <laughs> Well, it's like anything else. So if you think about the software development life cycle, you know, you can have a development project that might take six months, but the way in which you see results quicker is by using more agile methodology where you have those two week sprints, you have those milestones. And so every goal, you should be able to break down into those smaller increments of milestones where you're seeing little bits of progress. And so your job as the person who's trying to facilitate the change is to make sure that you are keeping track of those small wins, basically, so that you can put them in front of your stakeholder and say, this is what you get in two weeks. This is what you get in four weeks. This is what you get in six weeks. This is what you get cumulatively overall, but we have to break it down into these smaller things because too much change at once is, it's too disruptive to people. They won't do it. And then you can't really measure what was effective and breaking it down into those smaller increments and milestones helps you adjust along the way because 
you can lay out this pristine, you know, beautiful plan of how you want the change to go. It's never going to go that way. You have to be able to adapt and adjust as you learn new things about people or the way in which people react is different from what you thought it would be. If we think of change as something that's emotion-based, because it, it kind of is, um, mm -hmm. how do you navigate the the faulty software that's in all of our heads that to, to get people to change? If you think, like, you know, we'll, we'll get a little bit religious here. And <clears throat> in some religions, there's this concept like the seven cardinal sins, right? Pr pride, greed, uh, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth uh, are these sort of seven negative attributes that are all part of us, but they're also part of what makes us difficult to change like you know we, we talk about for example pride and someone's ego getting in the way of them being willing to make a change how do you navigate each of these not failings but i guess more stubborn aspects of our personalities so that we can say like yeah um this person's this person's motivation is maybe is greed right uh this person's mm -hmm. motivations maybe is is sloth they just don't want they you know they don't like change for the, because they just don't like change how do you how do you rewire people in a way so that the change sticks from an emotional you know, perspective. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. And I'm struggling with the answer that I know I'm going to give, but the answer is being an agent of change is not for everybody. It's a, it's something that you have to have a certain type of attitude and a certain type of aptitude and a certain type of personality. And it requires, you know, a shit ton of patience, um, which is really the bottom line. It requires a lot of patience uh, because you are, it's a, honestly, it's a lot like being a therapist in some way. So if you've ever been in, in uh, therapy and I was in therapy, you know, um, you know, for a long time, many years ago, but basically, you know, I remember being the patient and being really frustrated because I felt like we kept revisiting the same conversations over and over and over again. And I would get impatient. I'm like, we already talked about this. And the therapist would be like, well, let's look at it from a different perspective. Let's look at it from a different angle. And, you know, looking back on that experience, I realized how much patience this person had to have with me in order to get me to the conclusions over six months that took them about five minutes to understand. And so they already knew where they wanted the car to go. They were putting me in the driver's seat, giving me all the tools I needed to get to where they had been for six months. And so that's really part of the challenge is the person who is facilitating the change really has to have that patience and focus to say, I know where we need to go. My job is to now get you there. And so if you're dealing with that stubbornness of you know, greed or fear or envy or you know, whatever the personality trait is, you need to have that patience to really try to understand where that emotion is coming from. Um, so there is quite a bit of psychology that goes into it and not in a manipulative sense of, okay, I know this person is afraid of this, so let me twist it in such a way so I can get them to do the thing I want. It's more of that empathy of, let me understand why they are so afraid of this change, or let me understand why they are so just ambivalent about this change so that I can then help them see if they make this change, this is how things will improve for the better. This is how it directly affects that one person. And so that's also part of the 
change management process as well is change management as a whole for the team or the company, but then focusing on the individuals so that they can see themselves in the change and how it directly affects them. So change management is effectively organizational therapy. In some ways it can be, yeah. It depends on how it depends on how resistant people are to change. But yes, there is quite a bit of that, you know, put in light quotes because I'm not a therapist, so I don't want to pretend that I am. But yeah, that organizational therapy um, is definitely there because people need to feel like they are being heard. They actually need to be heard. And so understanding why they haven't changed is a big part of it as well. They might feel like they can't or it's too late or they've been doing the same thing for too long that why bother at this point? So technology is pretty easy to to rewire, you know, get a new vendor or whatever. Process is relatively straightforward to implement, you know, this is the way you're going to do new things. How do you deal with people where their, say, their emotional investment in something is a relatively unchangeable roadblock? Um, let's go with... Uh, let's go, let's go with um, envy as a, as one of those negative traits. Like this person just wants the, the CEO's job or whatever, and they're going to do everything they can possibly to sabotage that person um, so that they get themselves, you know, lined up. It's kind of like, uh, you know, being second officer on a Klingon warship. Eventually, you know, you're just going to assassinate the captain so you can take over. Um, not as life or death, but there are definitely cases in organizations where there are people who are working for their own success and not for the organization's success. Um, and they will do things that are counterproductive to the organization, but boost their own career. Mm -hmm. When you're doing change management, is it possible to change those people? Uh, or are their motivations so out of alignment that you have to figure out a way to get them out the door? Well, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. You can't get to everybody. You can't change everybody and you are going to have people where it's not the right fit for that culture who are going to be counterproductive and distracting to the change that you're trying to enforce so whether you're a consultant being brought in or you're the you're you know the team lead you need to be aware of the chemistry of all of the people together the whole team as a you know as one single unit and what that looks like and so you know if you break it down in terms of like, so let's say I'm thinking about it the way that you might think about it, Chris, let's say you've written a bunch of code and then there's this one line that keeps causing an error. So what do you do? You remove that one line of code so that the rest of the code works harmoniously together to get you to the outcome that you want. While it sounds harsh, it is sort of the same process of as you're going through this organizational therapy, as you called it, you need to, figure out, you know, what are, what are the values of our team and who upholds those and who doesn't and who is in it for the right reasons and who is in it for personal gain. Now, figuring that out is not an easy thing. Like on paper, it sounds easy, but you might not get all of the information up front. People might not be honest with you up front. And that's a big part of the challenge is trying to understand those motivations as to why people don't want to change. So a really great example of this, um, Chris, that you're familiar with as well is, um, you know, different web analytics tracking systems. So there's a couple of big players, you know, out there on the market, you know, you have Adobe, you have Google Analytics, you have 
Momoto, which I think is the free open source version. And so we've run into folks who are just completely loyal and have blinders on to one system or the other. And when making a suggestion, maybe you should consider this other system as well. You know, they immediately, no, I don't want to do this. It's not going to happen. I only want to use this one tracking system because it's what I know It's the source of truth. And I think we had a breakthrough with uh, that conversation a, a few months ago when we were really able to have patience and dig in and find out where that stubbornness was coming from. But that took, what, maybe 18 months to get there. But it was that consistent, okay, let's understand. Let's not pe put people on the defensive. It took a long time to get there. And once we got there, now we're starting to see that change happen. And it just, it took that time. We had to have that patience and that focus of, we know where we want this car to go. We just need other people to get in the car and get on that journey as well and feel like they have control over the situation. And so there was there were points in time where we weren't sure if we had the right people going on this journey with us, but we had to have patience and see how it would shake out. So you can't get to everybody, it's not easy, but I would say making those snap judgments is probably not the best way to go. How do you, how do you know when you're 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 pushing the boulder uphill and and the change is probably not going to stick? You know, uh, I'll give you a, a different example. Let's say an organization says they are committed to diversity and inclusion, um, but seven of the top ten executives are racists. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm also like, oh yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or you know, you know, take take any group. You know, they, they, they we're committed to a diversity and inclusion. The entire board of directors and the entire executive suite is all male. Like, mm, are you committed? How do you know when change is possible and mm -hmm. probable, and you can make good head, you know, inroads? And when you know, yeah, you know, this is this is going to be like trying to climb up a greased flagpole. Um. I mean, again, it comes down to those small incremental changes. And so the ability to demonstrate small change eventually leads to big change. And so if you're working with, you know, in that scenario, if you're working with an executive team who says they're committed to, you know, diversity and inclusion, then you need to start small because that's a big change because that is literally unseating certain people to slot other people in. So it may result in job loss or job change. That's not a small issue to tackle, but it is something you can, you know, uh, affect change with. So it's starting small and incremental. So, okay, how are you committed to changing your hiring processes? How are you committed to, you know, the types of events that you participate in? How are you committed to, you know, the, uh, types of other businesses that you might align yourself with or that you might promote or partner with. And so starting with things that feel a little more comfortable before you get straight into the uncomfortable. Cause I think that you can't just say, okay, great. So there's seven of you, you're all white, four of you have to go. That's a non-starter right there. <laughs> that might be the end result that you're hoping for, but you can't start there because that's just not going to go anywhere. People are like, uh, no, I'm not just going to leave the job that I've been in for 20 years and I'm getting a six figure salary. Get out of here. You have to work your way up to those kinds of results. And maybe the decision 
would be, okay, we're gonna add four more seats to the executive board. We're gonna create new jobs or we're going to change responsibilities to make room for these other things. But you have to work your way to that. You can't just start there because that's gonna be a recipe for disaster because that's too much change at once. I mean, so Chris, if I said to you, okay, I know that you have been living in the same town for, you know, 15 some odd years, you have the same routine, you know, I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your children out of your house and give you five new kids. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move you to a different city and I'm going to change your job. Cool. I'm going to do that all overnight. What's in it for me? <laughs> Well, and you know, that actually is a really great question because that's a lot of, you know, when we're sort of talking about people need to see themselves, those individuals, they want to know what's in it for them. Like, are they still just another cog in the wheel helping move the company forward? Or is there a personal benefit to them participating in this change and getting on board and advocating for this change? When it comes to change management, I've, I've heard different perspectives, you know, like Jonah Berger famously talks about reducing the pain of change, whereas other folks talk about, you know, increasing the, the, the pleasure of change. And, you know, as you know, uh, sort of Tony Robbins stick. Um, and, and so you have this basic duality of either the, the pain of change has to be less than the pain of staying the same, which is sort of, you know, that one perspective, or how do you reduce the, the burden of change so that uh, it again becomes a, a case where the pain of change is, is less than the pain mm -hmm. of staying the same. In your experience, it may, I, I, I'm guessing it's probably situation by situation, but in general, which is easier for people to be able to do it, to, to understand the change is going to hurt less or to, to present them with such benefits that they're like, oh, I've got to do this. You know, you know, it hurts too much to, to not want an extra zero on my salary. It's interesting because you're describing them and I'm like, it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing, but it is that matter of how you're positioning it to someone. Is it a negative or is it a positive? And so it really is case by case dependent on what motivates that particular person. And so that's where a lot of the time and energy goes is to understand those individuals who comprise the larger team so that you can say, okay, for you, you need that positive reinforcement for you you need to see how painful this is going to be. Um, it's one of the reasons, Chris, why I really want us, when we sort of build out requirements, gathering, those kinds of things, to run through those scenarios of, if you change this, this is the outcome. If you change this, this is the outcome. And here's what happens if you change nothing. And quite often that if you change nothing, that tends to be the most powerful part of the conversation because now they've seen all these other things. Like, yeah, this path is kind of really hard, this path is hard, but not as difficult, but the path of staying exactly the same, that is usually the most painful because here's what's going to happen when you don't do the thing. So from a uh, sales position, uh, perspective, then if you're losing most of your deals to no decision, is that because you have not outlined the pain of staying the same? Mm -hmm. I think that's usually a really good place to start with what's going on. And so, you know, in that particular instance, okay, the no decision, does that, does that mean that people, they don't have the budget and they're afraid to tell you, okay, so how can you change that? Do you have that budget decision up front and really get that commitment before you even go down the road? Um, you know, is it because that company has really high turnover and they've ghosted you? So there's a lot of different ways to examine it. Um, but yeah, the, 
if you keep losing to no decision, that the pain of staying the same means you're going to continue to do that and never know what happened. And that as a business is problematic. You need to know what happened so that you can fix the problem. So how do you, I guess you'll go the negative route. How do you amplify the pain of staying where you are until the, until it becomes obvious, like, yeah, we've, we've got to change. Cause you know, one thing that, you know, for example, our friends like uh, Mitch Joel will say is like, if a company is in enough pain, they will find the budget. Budget is not an actual obstacle. It just means that you have not identified a reason for them to change. So how do you dig into that to pull out and say, okay, yeah, this, this part here that you're refusing to change is actually going to hurt a hell of a lot more. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in medicine, if if a doctor says, yeah, you should probably get that taken care of because in 10 years, if you don't, this will kill you. Uh, and you're like, all right. <laughs> oh, no, by the way, it'll be an excruciating death along the way. Um, right. How, how do you do that in something in the context of like sales and marketing where you can say to somebody, yeah, this is this, you know, this is going to be something that's going to cause you a lot more pain. If you can put the values together, money talks. Putting the financials behind it actually goes a long way for people to see. So if you can get a handle on the financial impact of not changing, that usually helps the conversation move pretty quickly. So in the example of, you know, you're losing a lot of business to no decision. Okay, let's talk about what, how much money that business represents. What would have happened if you'd won that business? And what happens if you continue to lose all of the business that you have in your pipeline to, to, you know, no decision. And so that might mean, you know, loss of jobs, loss of healthcare, loss of the business itself. And so really breaking it down into those very tangible things where people are like, oh, when you say I might lose my job, I understand what that means versus, you know, if you focus on it from like a process standpoint, like you have to ask them the question, they're like, yeah, whatever. But if you make it really concrete, then people can start to wrap their heads around, this is why the change is necessary. How much do you align that with those seven cardinal sins? Like if somebody, if you know somebody, this person is, this is a pride person, it's all about them and their mm -hmm. ego. They want to look great on stage. Um, do you align your, what you're doing in your, in your selling? Because selling is change management. You're trying to, to make mm -hmm. a change a company take a change uh with that and you'll know, say here's how this is going to make you look better or someone whose you know thing is sloth you know like hey this change will let you work even less <laughs> than you already do um how much of that goes into change management you know from the perspective of sales to get somebody to go ah yeah you know that sounds pretty good I, you know I, that's that's who i am for good or ill um mm -hmm. and i want to be more like that you know, I personally have never thought about it from that perspective in terms of aligning it with the seven sins. But when you say it that way, I realize that that is how I approach a lot of conversations is the first thing I do is sit back and listen and try to understand who I'm talking to, how they're approaching it. Are they aggressive? Are they insecure? Are they stubborn? Are they a people pleaser? And then work with that to have a conversation that they can hear. That's the biggest part of it is understanding the type of person that you're talking to so that when you are conversing with them, they're hearing what you're saying and it's not just noise. So, you know, that is it, that is the approach is, okay, if someone, you know, just wants to look great, okay, what can you do to support them to look better? If someone is overworked, what can you do to lessen their burden? 
even if at the end of the day, you're selling this exact same service to different, two different people, the way that they need to feel about the thing is going to be different. And so you have to approach it differently, even though it's the exact same thing on paper. So it sounds like change management, even though it, 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 at first blush sounds like you know your average consulting firm's expensive BS um, actually permeates pretty much everything we do. So in ter- if folks want to get started in terms of understanding it better, where do they start? Where's, where's, where's the first place you say, yeah, if you want to learn a bit more about this, go here. Honestly, it might be um, organizational behavior you know, articles, textbooks, those kinds of things, just to understand, first of all, the different kinds of organizational structures, like a matrix or, you know, silos, whatever that looks like. But then also starting to dig into, you know, some of the psychology behind it, because those structures didn't just randomly come about. Those structures were put in place for specific reasons, you know, so I would say I would start there personally. Um, you know, I'm not going to say you need to go out and get a psychology degree, but maybe you should do less talking and more listening. And so sit down with your team, you know, if you're the manager of the team and let them talk, just have them just interact with each other and sort of start taking those mental notes of who does the most talking, who does the least talking, you know, what is their body language? What is their tone? You know, really just understanding the different complex personalities that comprise your team and there's no good or bad it's just everybody's different and everybody has very different backgrounds that make them who they are so that they approach things very differently and so chris you and i are very different we approach things very differently (laughs) which is not a bad thing it's actually one of the reasons why trust insights works so well because we approach it so differently it's a balance um but I would go out on a limb and say, you're probably not the right person to be a change agent. Whereas I am the right person to be a change agent because of those differences that we have. Unless a change involves replacing people with machines, you are absolutely correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to that point, you know, I do rely on you uh, to have more of that information about the technical change of things. And so you understanding the software and technology and the data helps me understand the people and the process. Exactly. If you got questions about change management and you want to talk to uh, to folks who actually know what they're doing, like Katie, join our uh, free Slack group, trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers. There's over 1,700 marketers uh, and folks all looking to make changes for the better. And wherever it is that you are watching or listening to this today, if there's a channel that you prefer, go on over to trustinsights.ai slash TI podcast, where you can find uh, the podcast on the channel or the, uh, the, the medium of your choice. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Want help solving your company's data analytics and digital marketing problems? Visit trustinsights.ai today and let us know how we can help you.